This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And away we go with the Tuesday Bob Olin Show. Good morning to you, Bob. Well, good morning, Dave, and it is a good morning. Nice, <laughs> yeah. bright sun, and uh, who knows for how long, of course. <laughs> we do have a winter storm watch up. That'll be from tomorrow afternoon through Thursday. Could be some big snows, big winds, cold temperatures, the usual routine. Yeah, I guess so. We're kind of used to it. It has been a winter, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, and it's not <laughs> over yet, I guess. No, I guess not, apparently. But as you keep track of, uh, day length is getting longer oh, rather yeah. dramatically, isn't it? It is. Uh, we won't get dark uh, tonight until, well, sunset is 542. Came yes. up this morning at 703. So that's a good thing. The sun's getting a little higher in the sky, too, so the snow we do get should melt away quickly if we get some sunshine later. Yeah, we'll just have to uh, enjoy what's coming over the next mm-hmm. couple of days here. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it is kind of fun. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of amazing because I think we are responsive to daylight, just like our plants are typically. But uh, I always seem to have a little more energy when that sun's up early <laughs> in the morning and uh, want to get out, get moving, and, and do a lot of different things. Clean, cleaned up a little of the snow already from the other day here. Right. So. Uh, we're doing good, Dave, uh, Dave, certainly. And, you know, we got a lot of springtime activities coming up. You know, I thought maybe today I wanted to talk in the past just a little bit about geraniums because uh, for folks, uh, this is one of the most popular ornamental flowers that we've got out there. They're grown typically. We use this general term geranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have geranium, native perennial geraniums in the ground. They're a little smaller, a little more diminutive. But when we talk about uh, a lot of the geraniums that are produced in our local greenhouses, these are really what we call pelargoniums, not to put too far point on them. But they got the common name geraniums. They've got the large leaves, the beautiful flowers. We we treat them typically as an annual, but um, they can also be held over. And there are any number of ways that you can hold them over. They really don't have any kind of a storage structure. When you take a look at a... You know, apply like a tuberous begonia or even, you know, potatoes, uh, Irish potatoes. We've got a storage mechanism there with a, a real thick stem or a real thick root uh, with lots of carbohydrate. And that, that becomes kind of the storage mechanism for these plants. So we, we can bring them in, store them under root cellar conditions and plant them out in the spring of the next year. But when we take a look at geraniums, you know, they've got a root system, and they've got uh, relatively thin stem material, so they really don't have any kind of a storage organ as such, but uh, we can definitely keep them over if we like. There are any number of techniques that are used. So you got them in containers. Uh, they are, again, probably one of the number one uh, ornamental plants that are sold locally, probably sold throughout the upper Midwest as one of the number one plants because of all the variability, so many different colors, so many different leaf shapes. Uh, we, we, if you prune them up and you deadhead them, we can get bloomed through much of the season. So they really are a very, very popular plant. You can keep them over. You can bring them inside. They're frost sensitive, of course. So you can bring them inside. You got a bright, sunny wind, wind, window, and you can uh, cut back on the water just a little bit and uh, keep them growing. Now, obviously, light is a trigger for all these things, so they're going to slow down, and you want them to slow down. But uh, this time of year, if you if you store them that way, there are other ways you can you can keep them over the winter. You can actually take them if they've been uh, either in a container or down in the, out in the garden. Uh, you can dig them up and uh, restore those roots. Be careful; the roots shake some of the soil off, 
and then hang them in an upside down, typically in a cool, dry, root cellar-like conditions, 40 to 50 degrees in dark conditions. And actually, those plants will, in fact, stay alive that way. Hmm. And they're they're just living off the uh, the carbohydrate that's stored in those stems. So the stems are don't have a storage mechanism, but there is tissue there, and they're they're relatively thick. So uh, they'll stay alive. So this time of year, and the reason I wanted to touch on them just a little bit, this is the time of year if you store them that way that you want to take them down and you want to uh, pot them up, you'll be cutting those back to green tissue. So you can kind of tell what's dried up. The, the flower buds obviously are going to be dried. And the upper portion of the stem is going to be dried. Cut them back to the green tissue. Try to cut back to a bud, and then they can actually be rooted out. We like to put them in... Uh, a rooting material like uh, 50% vermiculite, 50% uh, perlite, get it nice and moist, get a little rooting hormone down there, and you can buy rooting hormones either uh, uh, from your lawn and garden shop. Uh, Homadin's one of the great big name brands out there. We use just a touch of that, and uh, then uh, you can get them potted up in this rooting media, which is 50% vermiculite, 50% perlite, then after we get a root system going, and you might want to pull a clear plastic over the top, but don't put it in the direct sunlight just to conserve a little of the moisture. Once we get a root system, then we can pot them up into a potting soil, and then we can move them out. By this time, they grow relatively slowly, so it takes some time. That's why I wanted to mention it right now. If you want to do anything with any of the geraniums that you, you overwintered, uh, now is the time we want to get them started. Now, if you brought, just brought them in, you had them in a container, brought them in, kept them growing very slowly uh, with some available light, you're going to have to cut them back. They get real long and leggy. So mm-hmm. this is the time of year where we want to cut them back, cut them back again to a uh, to a bud. And then the fun thing is the days get longer. You can just watch the, the new leaves begin to emerge, and you're going to have a, uh, a lush green plant that ultimately is going to give you some nice bloom a little later in the season. Now, Dave, if you're cutting your own back or if you're starting your own, uh, it will take a while. So it's mm-hmm. going to take a while for those blooms to set up. So what I usually suggest people do for early bloom in the season, go out to the greenhouses where they've been taking the cuttings and, and they've got them growing under ideal conditions and they will bloom early for you. So always renovate some of your stock by buying some new material. They're going to bloom early for you in the season. And then what you overwintered, will actually carry on that bloom just a little bit later in the year, starting about the end of July and into early August. So you get this nice continuous bloom and you wow. also got you've got some new material every year that you're going to introduce, throw out some of the old bad material, and then you just keep these cycling every year. Some you overwinter, some you buy new, you get bloom early in the year and get bloom a little later. But Dave, they are fun. For anyone yeah. that wants to cut those plants back, it's fun to watch those immature leaves that are going to emerge and the stems that are going to emerge from uh, from the areas that you cut back. So yeah. it's the light that's the trigger, and in February like this, this is when we really want to get that process started. Great info. Never realized you could do that. we got a question already. Bob, hi. Who's this? Great. Uh, this is Barb calling from Duluth, but I'm calling for a friend. Okay. Sure. Um, she Okay, last August she received from a member of her family uh, Amarella plant, and you told her not to plant it because it was too late in the season. Because it was like the 18th of August, she got this last year. Okay, and you told her to take it inside. She's had it inside, but now she's getting all these little 
like little black uh, insects flying around in her house. Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, they may have come from that plant or from other plants. Anything we bring in, we obviously can uh, we can have a number of smaller insects. Uh, let me let me circle back just a little bit. Uh, did she find a good sunny location for it? And has she got good uh, green leaf tissue out there? Are those strap leaves beginning to form? I think it still has the flowers and everything on it, but she just wants to get rid of these little bugs. Whatever wants to get rid of the insects, yes. Okay. Insects. I can certainly, I can certainly understand that. I think we can start with the least toxic uh, treatment first. Uh, you know it's in a pot, and if it isn't too large, you can just try using uh, room temperature water under a spigot. And you don't want it too cold, don't want it too hot. Just try to wash them off. That would be perhaps the easiest thing that you can do. And uh, if that doesn't seem to be effective, we have some uh, in what we call insecticidal soaps. And one of the big name brands out there is one called Safers, and that could be used inside. And hopefully that will take care of the problem uh, as well. You really don't have any type of uh, harsher pesticides that are labeled for use inside that have to wait till we get uh, warmer temperatures outside. But I would start with just a, uh, a water wash and then if that isn't effective with uh, uh, what we call an insecticidal soap. And it's a chemical definition of soap. We don't want to use dish soap. We don't want to use bath soap. People get that confused. As an insecticide, you actually want an insecticidal soap that you'll purchase again from from any one of the good lawn and garden shops, including, I think, one of our sponsors in this program probably has some of that on themselves. So uh, I would uh, I would go that particular route. I would probably isolate the plant if they're associated with that so those insects don't get to the any other plants in the house. So put it in a room out of its own and uh, go through that process, washing, then using an insecticidal soap. And usually that takes care of them. If there isn't a lot of damage to the plant itself, we have a couple of insects that are typically soil-borne, and um, they, they will feed on some of the decaying organic material in the soil. They typically don't do a lot of damage to the plant, so they're not stinging or chewing insects like we would encounter more typically outside. So they're just more of an annoyance than anything else but something you certainly can control with a couple of those easy techniques. Okay? Okay, when you wash it off, what do you wash it off with? Just... Well, I would, I would say, uh, you know, amaryllis like that, you could uh, cover, the, cover the soil so you don't wash a lot of it away, and if you've got, uh, you could put it just under mild uh, household temperature water and just a water spray under... Uh, you know, a, a kitchen faucet or in the shower or something like that, just so okay, you don't sure. wash wash all the soil away. So you might want to put maybe an aluminum foil uh, canopy over the around the base and over the top portion of the soil, so you don't wash everything away. And then just just uh, be relatively uh, uh, careful, not too heavy of a water stream, and just try to try to wash any of the larvae or eggs that might be there, as well as some of the adults. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for the thank call. You. Appreciate it. 928, we'll take a break, Bob, and be right back. The Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. And we're back, Bob. We got yet another phone call this morning. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Crystal. Okay, Crystal. And, and Bob, I called you last week about starting my onions and leeks from seeds, and now I have another question for you. Okay, great. Nice to hear from you again, Crystal. 
<laughs> Thank you. I typically leave my lights on for 16 hours and off for eight hours. And because okay. these are long day onions, I'm wondering if I can do that without them going to bulbing up too soon. You know, um, I think probably we're just a little bit long on that right now. Uh, let's go to maybe uh, 12 and 12 at this point. And then you can extend the uh, the light as we move along. Uh, the the lengthening daylight is what triggers the bulbs, and we're really quite a ways from the time we're going to set them out. So uh, I think uh, at this point you could go about 12 and 12, 12 hours of light and 12 hours of, of darkness uh, at a minimum, and then you can extend that just a little bit. Uh, the bulbing process isn't going to really occur until we get uh, a much larger plant and seedling to work from but uh the key thing at this point is uh starting early have you started to seed them yet no i was going to do that this weekend yeah i think that's good timing we don't want to go too early there and what you're going to find is you're going to find that uh, they get uh, kind of long and leggy and you're just going to give them a haircut with a scissors so you keep cutting you know when they get up to about when they get long and lengthy and flop over you want to get them pruned up a little bit so they grow very slowly it will take a while. Uh, make sure that you uh, you do ultimately lift those and separate them. So you you want to give them a little bit more room to grow out that seedling. So you're going to transplant at least once after that that seed emerges, and give it give it some more room depending on the type of cell pack that you're going to use, and then you'll be transplanting these out. You know they can go out about uh, May one. And uh, then they take advantage of that day length as we move from uh, the 1st of May through the third week there in June to the longest day. And it's that period right there that'll that'll trigger the blooming process for you. Okay. Do I have to okay. transplant? I mean, I'm going to be starting a 1,000 onions and a 1,000 leeks. I don't really want to transplant. Oh, you're going to start a 1,000 of each. Nothing. There you go. Nothing like being a little ambitious. You like both of those crops. That's great. Um you got to give them enough room. You you don't necessarily have to transplant as long as they're not too tight. In other words, uh, they're going to require at least uh, you know an inch and a half of soil a soil ball around them, uh, just so they can grow out over that period of time when you get ready to transplant. If you if you don't have them separated, uh, then they're going to be very very dense and very very tight, and you can pull them apart. But you'd get to that point in early May where they really haven't had the opportunity to take off and grow because they've been so tightly packed together. So you don't necessarily have to as long as you're going to, when you seed them out, you give them enough space to begin with. Or the other thing is, because you don't get 100% germination, go ahead and seed them in and then thin them down so they have a little bit more room. So try to spread that seed out when you're, uh, when you're seeding. But if you find that you've got two that are right adjacent to each other, and they really have to be separated out. Otherwise, they tend they can tend to kind of grow together. Then you don't get one nice, real distinct bulb. You get kind of uh, one that overlaps another. So you, you may want to thin them out then in the process. So go ahead and seed, but with the idea that you're either going to space them, or that if they are too tight, you're going to just pull one of the uh, one of the plants out and leave the stronger one there uh, to mature. Thousand of each. Uh, did you decide on the varieties that you were going to plant? Yeah, I'm planting red carpet and talon. Oh, okay. And those are, to be honest with you, red carpet is is the the red variety. Yes. 
that's one I'm not real familiar with. So let's stay in touch, and uh, we can exchange uh, favorite red red onion varieties in the process. I'm always interested in new uh, new varieties that come down the pike. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the Thank call. Thank you very much. Well, we know where to go uh, if we need. Uh, I guess uh, onions in the future. <laughs> a thousand. I, I do like that. I have been known myself to get a little carried away sometimes with <laughs> onions. So uh, I have uh, planted many thousands some years. Right. But, uh, she's she's got a uh, she's got an undertaking. Yeah. I the reason I ask, she's got two varieties there. But if people, you know, we've got this, first. We want to stay with basically the long day onions, and those are the the, the varieties that are going to bulb up for us under our conditions, because we've got a lot more light here than we have even at Hinkley or in the Twin Cities. Farther north you go, the longer the days get, and um, it, this triggers a blooming process for some varieties. Short-day varieties uh, don't want to don't want to set up that way. Those are the varieties that are going to grow down in Texas or other places. Then we've got midday varieties, but if you are going to embark on this process, I, I do think it's important that you make one well, you can make the color distinction, yellow, white, and red, and that that can be significant. But you want to, even more than that, you want to make the distinction between a sweet salad onion that you're going to harvest. It's, it's sweeter. It's not quite as pungent. And your storage onions, because a sweet onion will be great on your salad, but uh, they do not store very well. They want to break bud, and, and they'll start to grow on you. And then as soon as they start to grow in storage, then the bulb itself gets... Uh, turns to mush as it as it uses that energy to produce the green shoots so a storage onion will be different storage onion will will be a little more pungent so it's not like a sweet onion but it'll definitely keep significantly better for you under under cool storage conditions so right. if you're looking at we we've got so many different varieties we could talk about it's like everything else uh, <laughs> there are perhaps 10 or 15 onion varieties that we talk about but she's got one there that i've not grown out but i've grown out any number of other reds from Mars to Red Zep and uh, any number of other reds. So I'll be kind of interested to see how she does with that one called Red Carpet there. All right, 937. We've got another call to get to. We'll do that right after a break on KDAL. All right, Bob, we are back. We've got uh, another call uh, to get to. Hi, who's this? Great. Good morning. My name is Landon. Go ahead, Landon. Hello. Okay, Landon. I have Good an issue. Good morning. I have an issue with moss taking over my yard. It's really growing at a rapid rate, and I've been every spring when the snow goes away, it seems like it's more and more and more. And last year, I tried digging up a patch of it, and that's uh, that's a big job. And I don't know what how to combat that. It is a very big job. Let me. You're not alone in this. I have the situation as well. What usually happens is we have trees. You have trees on the property, and a little more shade, and a little less drainage by chance over time. Too many, too many trees that are slowly going away. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, moss is unlike, it's not really what we consider a vascular plant. The only reason I'm going to mention this, it doesn't have a root system. All the moisture it gets, it absorbs right through the tissue. So uh, when we see a lot of moss developing, it's an indication that there's a fairly steady supply of water available. So one of the keys, uh, forget about trying to use uh, any type of a pesticide for control. People always like to reach for that. Then you've got a bare open spot and you've got moist conditions. Grass likes full sun and good drainage. So that's what you want. 
in place of the moss, then you're going to have to take a look at that landscape. You're going to have to open it up. Uh, in most cases, that means uh, trimming some trees or taking some trees down, particularly if grass grew there at one time. It's just a function of sunlight and getting more light and so we can dry those conditions down. So moss is not going to like it because it doesn't have any way to get roots down in the ground, pump water up, it will dry back. I will share this. Some people have just elected, and this has become very popular out in New England right now, just grow to different varieties of moss and let that let them grow and you don't have to mow it there it's not very wear tolerant of course like a good grass is but nonetheless if, if you're just looking at the lawn that would be one potential option just trying to cultivating letting it go other than that we've got to get uh, some of the water off we've got to get more sunlight in there and uh, in some cases we actually got to get some drain tile in there and try to wick some of the water away so that would be my advice on wa- on moss. That may not be what you wanted to hear, but uh, uh, that's where we're at with moss, my opinion. Okay, well, thank you for the information. Yeah, thanks for yeah, calling. Appreciate it. How about yeah, a system of mirrors, see, Bob? I also, well, I'm sorry, Dave? Yeah, put, put a big system of mirrors up to reflect the sunshine <laughs> yeah, onto the spot like where it's not getting it. There you go. Something yeah. like that to, to dry things <laughs> down, along with your solar panel arrays. I think there you go. It's going to be more and more important as we move into some of these alternate energy systems. Um, I would say this, that moss, uh, you know, it can be utilized for any number of uh, purposes. <laughs> uh, if you happen to be a fish, you want to keep those uh, uh, your earthworms uh, used for bait, uh, yeah. typically a sphagnum moss. And, of course, we, we do grow a lot of moss in this area. We've got damp areas uh, in uh, throughout northern Minnesota and up into Canada where we actually have this moss production. But once again, these we get down in these bogs where there's this continuous uh, moisture supply available, and that's what encourages the growth of some of these sphagnum mosses. But my situation, i got an area I just let, let it grow as moss. I don't even pick grow grass there because I'd have to take down a couple beautiful maples that I'm not willing to do. So I just enjoy the moss, and if I've got the opportunity, I need to protect some uh, earthworms for fishing. Uh, that sphagnum moss on top of them comes off the ground, and anyone that's pulled it off knows we really don't have a root system. It comes off very easily, but it's also an indication that it's very moist there. And if we want grass, we've got to get the moisture out, and we've got to get the sunlight back in. Okay, Dave? Yep. Like uh, you mentioned, I, I've got my share of moss, too, underneath a big old uh, evergreen tree that uh, won't go away. So, I, like you said, it's green and kind of blends in with the lawns. I'm just leaving it alone. Yeah, I think in many cases. And it's very interesting because it will go dormant. It's a very interesting plant, really, kind of a primitive plant because it's not vascular. But nonetheless, it uh, it'll go dormant, and uh, you can dry it down, and then you can actually reseed in other areas as long as the conditions are good. So right. there are actually areas out east where they're actually collecting moss. They consider it valuable for certain areas, the different varieties that are out there. And uh, they actually harvest it, and you can you can use it for horticultural purposes, but they can also use it to reseed areas where people really want a moss uh, yard or a portion of their yard that's dedicated to moss. All moss. right, thank you, Bob. We'll take another break. Be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show, nine forty-five now at KDAL. All right, Bob, we are back. It is a Fat Tuesday, by the way. Happy Mardi Gras to you. Tomorrow oh. starts Lent, and. Uh, <laughs> According to Kenny, he uh, does some of this stuff on on this date deals. Coming up on Thursday, it's Cook a Sweet Potato Day, and I know you're into sweet potatoes, so go ahead and cook one on Thursday. 
<laughs> That's real interesting. I learned so much listening to you guys. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the reminder on Fat Tuesday. I guess I can be a little indulgent today, yeah, can I? You certainly okay, can. Real fine. That's, you're responsible. Just be responsible yeah. in whatever you do. Okay. Yeah. I will. Thanks, Dad. I'll take that advice. Okay. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the sweet potatoes. I am uh, going to do a little program. I may, I may oh. just mention on March 8th up on Mount, Oil, Mount Iron Community Center. It's on the range. Uh, we are going to do a program, and one uh, one of the components there is going to be a discussion of both Irish potatoes as well as sweet potatoes. I've had some experience growing them out. They're totally different crops, and mm-hmm. I'll just mention this to folks. Uh, if you want to try sweet potatoes, a very warm season crop, and my experience with them was uh, they don't like any temperature below about 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. So I had set some out, and uh, they you handle them totally different. The actual component that you eat, that storage mechanism we talked about, uh, in the case of a sweet potato, you're really looking at a fleshy root. In the case of our conventional Irish potato, we're looking at a fleshy stem, and you can always tell the difference. Uh, obviously, with a Irish potato, those buds begin to break, so uh, stems have buds, and from that, you get the, uh, the elongated uh, leaves and, and the plant itself. In the case of a sweet potato, you've got roots. Now, the root will eventually uh, give you a, uh, a shoot, and then it has to develop its own additional roots off that. So what you plant, you actually order out, or you can grow these if you're very patient, and that's kind of an endeavor as well on a sweet potato now. But we typically order what we call slips, which is really a green plant, and I will mention this, anyone that really wants to get out there and give this a try, because I've been down this road a couple of times before, uh, you can get uh, slips, and these are going to be green plants with roots on them. They will, they've been harvested in the field. They've been grown down in Georgia, typically, or Tennessee, our big production areas. We get them in here. Uh, you can't set them out not only are they frost sensitive, but they're cold weather sensitive. So I set them out in early June after the risk of frost was was gone, and I'd put plenty of plants in the ground, and they're not going to be inexpensive, the plants either. And we had 40 degrees. I didn't think we were a long ways from frost. 40 <laughs> degrees took them all down, turned them all black on me, and never got a crop out of it. So my advice is this. Order the plants out. Uh, do not refrigerate because they're going to look great. They're going to stay lush and green. As soon as you take them out of the refrigerator, they turn to mush and they're black. So a lot of people will order these out. They will refrigerate. When you get the plants, uh, you know, they'll ship them a UPS or some other means. And uh, make sure that you just put them in a great big bowl of water. Put them out in the sunlight. Uh, make sure that water in the bowl never dries out because they're going to be sucking up a lot of moisture. And they'll hold for a long time. And then my advice is uh, no planting before June 15th, maybe the third week in June. And then they will take off and they'll grow for you. you got to be very careful about variety selection. So you want to select varieties that are on, under 100 days. So we'll be talking about some of these things. But if, in fact, our season's getting a little longer, if it's getting a little warmer, then I think uh, sweet potatoes might be a very viable crop. Obviously, the Irish potato has been with us for a long time. They're a cool season right. crop. They've... They have supported our population for a long time. It's the number one horticultural crop out there. That is potatoes in terms of volume. But sweet potatoes and um, uh, Irish potatoes are totally different. And if people are interested, we'll be talking about that along with so many other things on our program uh, on March 8th. That's Modern Community Center. 
Uh, it'll run from 10 to 3.30. There's a lunch included, $25 is the charge. You get all the variety lists, all the handout material, some of which I'm editing right now, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, just finishing up uh, some of the photos I took last year and put them in fact sheets for folks. So we'll have fact sheets on potatoes and sweet potatoes and I'm very interested in the new cauliflower and this uh, this new trendy thing called cauliflower pizza crusts and all kinds of things <laughs> like that. So we're going to be talking about a lot of those things. It's going to be really a, a very, very nice and a full day if you want to. You can uh, you can call an office in Virginia, 218-749-7120. They can give you all the information. Or we you can just Google St. Louis County Extension and they'll give you a uh, a link to where you can look up some more information on the web about the Mount Iron program. So there right. we go, a little yeah. pitch there. We, we always have 80, 90, 100 folks that show up for that. That'll be a fun day, and it's all new content that we're putting together, along with the help of our friends. Uh, we've got a number of speakers involved in the whole day there. Well, it's kind of interesting that regular potatoes and sweet potatoes are not really related. How did uh, it get its name potato, I wonder? Well, that's a good question. They are not at all related. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the... Um, <laughs> Again, the, 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 I suppose the, the shape would kind of like a regular potato, I guess. Well, right, they're they're fleshy. They got a fleshy root, but they're they're totally uh, totally different. They've been the mainstays, and of course, mm-hmm. the sweet potato is a southern crop. And another little known fact is uh, we'll see them labeled in our supermarkets, and of course, they they ship so well, they store so well, they store mm-hmm. entirely different too. For oh. folks might try to grow these out. You will take a sweet potato and you got to cure it. So that means you're going to hold it for three or four days at about 85 degrees if you can find a spot that warm <laughs> and late in the season. So you have to cure that outer skin. And then we store it at about 60 degrees. So we, we cure them, we store them warm. In the case of an Irish potato or our more conventional potatoes, uh, those we want, we don't cure, so we don't bring them to warmer temperatures. We drop them right down to the refrigerator temperatures, 35 to 40 and high relative humidity and we hold them there that way and at 50 or 60 degrees a conventional irish potato will break bud very quickly and that's way too warm for storage so they are totally different irish potatoes in the uh, nightshade family the uh, sweet potatoes in the morning glory family <laughs> totally different they just picked up this potato because they both have a fleshy uh, storage structure they're filled with lots of good vitamins right. yeah i just don't wonder the I, they're both healthy for you right very, very healthy. Right. And uh, actually, there's a lot of vitamin A even in that. Uh, they're, they're, they're both good. I mean, I'm surprised mm. even the Irish potato gets a little bit of a bad rap because it does contain a lot of carbohydrate, but yeah. there's also a, a lot of vitamin C, a lot of fiber, lots of uh, uh, protein even in, in wow. a conventional potato. So they're both nutritious. The advantage is sweet potato in that orange color that you get, which right. is typical. Now their flesh can be orange, purple, white, cream colored, so there's a lot of variability. But the more orange color you get, that's beta carotene, a precursor to vitamin A, so it, it does have mm-hmm. that vitamin A component that an Irish potato does not have. But they're both good, both very nice and nutritious, Dave. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I see you can order uh, sweet potato fries now, too, so... Yeah, they're they're very very popular. Right. Very very good. There's a there's a high carb content there, sugar content as well. So um, growing them here this far north is a little yeah. tricky. We got to pay attention to varieties and technique and so forth. But uh, I think uh, they're major crop farther south, and I think maybe as things are warming up, they could be a significant crop for us as well here. 
All right. Well, hopefully, Bob, next Tuesday uh, we'll be done with all the snow and it'll be a little more spring-like, I would think, by next week because, let's see, will we be in March? No, it'll be the last day of April next, uh, I mean, the last day of February next Tuesday. That's right. So... And based based on the snow that might be coming, I think the <laughs> landscapes will still probably be wet oh, yeah. a week from now. But no, more sun. No doubt sure. about it. Hey, Bob, as always, thanks, and uh, we'll catch you again next Tuesday. It's always fun. Thank you, Dave. And we'll check out the forecast that will be coming up next here on KDAL.